0: Hello everyone, and welcome to UCL. I I see that the room has fallen respectfully silent, so um, I might as well proceed with the introduction and Jakob to proceed with the lecture. Um, It is a great pleasure (coughs) to introduce Jakob. Jakob Nielsen is a lecturer in in Scandinavian Literature at the School of European Languages, Culture and Society. And he is currently writing a book on the Nordic Noir, which, um, if you've ever seen The Killing or read a Mankell novel, I think you'll know what, what we're talking about here. Um, he is uh, locally and nationally famous for his contributions to the theme. He has featured on the BBC Time Shift documentary on Scandinavian crime fiction fiction uh, a few years ago, and he is also the founder of the Nordic Noir Scandinavian Crime Fiction Book Club here in London, so there's really none better to talk to you about Scandinavian crime fiction and the end of the welfare state.
1: Thank you very much Susanne, and thank you all for coming, thanks for the invitation to talk in the UCL lunch hour lecture series today. About two years ago, the Department of Scandinavian Studies at UCL launched the public engagement project, Nordic Noir, a Scandinavian Crime Fiction Book Club. We were curious about the recent success of Nordic crime fiction in the UK, and we wanted to learn from readers, fans, translators, publishers, and authors what it was about the genre, the Nordic settings and characters, that made these novels and TV series travel so far beyond the Nordic region. In 2011, Stieg Larsson's Millennium Trilogy was still commuters preferred reading on the tube, and Kenneth Branagh had become the personification of the global success of Nordic crime writing as the now English-speaking Wallander. And this was before the success of Savalon's Lund's Nitwer in the Killing, and the Scandinavian design interiors of Bowen or Borgen. Now, with about 10 public events behind us and with a thriving community of readers and viewers who occasionally also meet in our social networks online, the book club is still going strong. We continue to share our reading experiences, talk to authors about their books, to translators about their translations. <coughs> And uh, over the past few years, we have had several events taking place in various atmospheric uh, locations around Bloomsbury. We have discussed a range of very important issues. Why is the weather always so bad on the book covers of Swedish crime novels, even if the weather is pretty decent in the stories themselves? We have discussed how volcanic activity in Iceland influences the Icelanders and Icelandic crime novels, why Norwegians spend their Easter holidays in mountain cabins reading crime stories on milk cartons, (laughs) why you need to know that sometimes left is right in Danish coalition politics, that Danish vowels are key to following Danish TV drama, and how one bridge between Denmark and Sweden can lead to cultural interactions and misunderstandings necessary for the plot of the Danish-Swedish TV series, The Bridge. The book club and its members are not afraid of viewing crime fiction and the Nordic cultures from, let's say, creative angles. And while questions about the motives of Nordic crime fiction have been plentiful and the sleuths of our book club been persistent and resourceful, one question in particular, has consistently evaded capture and prosecution. Did Nordic noir kill the Nordic model? How is it that these peace-loving, low-crime, egalitarian, almost annoyingly happy universal welfare states of Northern Europe show such ingenuity in fictional accounts of horrific criminal acts, serial murders, police corruption, misogyny, xenophobia, broken families, lonely alcoholics and a general incapacity of the welfare states to deal with social inequality, deviant behavior and to provide for the personal well-being of their citizens. In short, why is it that Nordic Noir so obviously bears a grudge against the Nordic welfare societies? In this lunch hour lecture, appropriately on the World Book Day, I will first thank all the readers and members of our book club who have engaged us and Nordic crime fiction with curiosity and enthusiasm, and helped us formulate research questions about the role of popular literature in society. And before I proceed to give a short overview of Nordic crime fiction, and finally some thoughts on Sarah Lund's jumper and the welfare state, uh, my personal experience with This book club in particular, as I'm sure thousands of peoples who participate in similar book clubs around the world will agree, is that if anyone ever doubted that literature has a key role to play in shaping and strengthening our communities and societies, one need only lend an ear to the conversations, the sharing of personal reading and life experiences across generations and backgrounds that take place throughout the world, every day, around books. While it would not be amiss to claim that true function of literature in society depends on its ability to be shared amongst readers, in other words, that literature is only partially for silent reading in our private chambers, my own research, which has grown out of the Nordic Noir Book Club, considers the ways in which crime fiction and literature more generally, since the 1960s, in the Nordic welfare states, Uh, has changed, and how it has changed our conceptions of what it means to have a good and happy life. This inquiry has so far led to a conference here at UCL and a special issue of the journal Scandinavica, wherein colleagues from UCL and University of Southern Denmark took an early step in the new field of literary welfare studies. Our attempt was to formulate a poetics of the Scandinavian welfare state by considering the multiple ways in which post-World War II Scandinavian fiction is intertwined with the welfare state. We consider both how fiction has dealt thematically with the welfare state's new types uh, of people, mentalities, social formations, languages and conceptions of well-being and how fiction itself may have changed by the challenge of the welfare state Although it is too early to draw any conclusions from this ongoing work, it is interesting to see how deep the gulf appears to be between perceptions of welfare and well-being amongst the citizens of the Nordic countries and the stories that are being told about life in the welfare state. Anyone who has seen the Danish TV drama, The Killing, will agree that very few, if any of the characters whose lives we follow both at work and at home, are particularly happy, content, full of meaningful social relationships, trusting the legal, political, financial systems of the Danish welfare state. And then look at this. The Danes are the happiest people in Europe and have been insanely happy, at least since such measurements started in the early 1970s. People have quite rightly been surprised by this, and when it was reported on the American TV show, 60 Minutes, back in 2008, the segment wondered how it can be that such a gloomy country, the home of miserable Hamlet, where people live on herring, beer and cigarettes, could possibly be the happiest. Surely, it would make one happier to live in, say, Italy, where at least the weather and the food is better, or in a country where you didn't have to pay 50% of your income in taxes. Nevertheless, when asked, seventy percent I'll go back to seventy-one percent of Danes reply that they are very satisfied with life in this universal welfare state. Other Nordic countries are of course not far behind. No wonder David Cameron, who in 2010 initiated a project to assess the well-being of British citizens, and recently at Miliband, have taken turns visiting their Scandinavian neighbours to learn more about how the state can make its citizens happy. Obviously, with a much larger significance was the Duchess of Cornwall's visit to the set of The Killing in 2012, where she was presented with a cardigan of the trademark pullover worn by Sophia Grobbel. Crime fiction and welfare are intertwined in interesting ways. They're both national and regional brands. One sells happiness, the other gloom. Where the welfare state guarantees individual freedoms, we find crime stories of constraint. Where the state provides for the children and the elderly, we read stories about the failure of the state to empathise and care. Where the state provides the framework for well-functioning communities and families, crime stories overflow with lonely and excluded characters on both sides of the law. Where Nordic welfare societies have a high level of gender equality, we find narratives of deeply rooted inequalities and violence against women. Even the material well-being provided by the welfare state leads to stories of rampant individualism, overconsumption, and a loss of morals. In other words, while the Nordic welfare state or welfare societies are upheld as ideals, however utopian, The stories that have been told, at least since the 1960s, are prominently dystopian. While many of you surely know your Nordic crime fiction history backwards and forwards, I will, however, attempt to give a very short history of the genre and mention uh, some of its, by now, canonical works, in case one or two of you still have the luxury of being unacquainted with Nordic noir beyond Stieg Larsson and The Killing. While crime fiction in Nordic countries has a long history going back to uh, at least the first part of the the 19th century, it is in the period since the Second World War that Nordic crime fiction has contributed a particular accent uh, and a growing number of globally successful authors to a predominantly Anglo-American genre. Nordic crime fiction since the Second World War is indebted to the golden age of British crime writers in the 20s and 30s, the writers such as Dorothy L. Sayers and Katha Christie, and she has many traits with the American hard-boiled private detective stories of Raymond Chandler and the police procedurals of Ed McBain. But with my Shurvel and Pierre Valois' 10-volume series about Martin Beck, collectively known as Report of a Crime, and the new wave of crime writing in the 1990s, Nordic crime fiction was to add the various uh, sub-genres of crime fiction an emphasis on social realism and criticism, gloomy Nordic locations, and the trademark morose detective. In the 1960s, Schövel and Valu had translated several of Ed McBain's 87th Precinct novels and found in his pioneering police procedurals the inspiration for a formula wherein the private lives and personal struggles of police officers are mirrored in the larger social political landscape of Sweden's People's Home, the particular Swedish version of the Nordic welfare state. From their marxist leninist perspective, the authors explicitly aimed to use their crime novels as a means to analyze the Swedish welfare state, to relate crime to the state's political and ideological doctrines, and to reveal its perceived fascist nature. The subtitle of the novels, Report of a Crime, was then both an indicator of the genre and a programmatic statement criticizing the criminal subservience of the welfare state to capitalism. From Rosanna in 1965 to the terrorists in 75, Shöval and Valle's crime novels follow Beck and his homicide squad from the sex murder of an American tourist to the murder of a prime minister in a Swedish police state, anticipating the murder uh, of the Swedish prime minister, Olof Palme, by a decade. In their investigations, Beck and his team are constantly faced with an impenetrable uh, police bureaucracy and metonymy for a brutal society that gradually overshadows this idyllic, idyllic Swedish welfare state. Less politically radical in his critique of Danish society, Anna Spudelsen similarly used the social realistic thriller to explore the new realities of the welfare state in Think of a Number from 1968. Boulsen insisted that collective conflict should be understood through the private. And in his breakthrough novel, the personal conflict of a bank cashier, who is tempted to hide the loot from a bank robbery, is reflected in society's balancing act between materialism and social responsibility. In the late 1980s and 1990s, the Nordigans national thriller gained attention with Jan Guillou's Cog Rouge series from 86 to 2006, featuring the Swedish spy Carl Hamilton, a nobleman with socialist leanings, and uh, with the work of Leif Davison, whose political thrillers focused on Russia and the New Europe in The Russian Singer for 1998 and The Serbian Dane from 1996. Like Bullsen and later Stieg Larsson, these writers were already well known, and in the case of Yulio, a controversial journalist who used the subgenre of the thriller to criticize and reflect on the changing national and global political climate in the final years and the aftermath of the Cold War. However, it was the police procedural in the style of Shurval and Valer that would write the cusp of the new wave of Nordic crime writing in the 1990s, continuing in the footsteps of Martin Beck. Henning Mankell's inspector, Kurt Wallander, O.K. Edwardsson's chief inspector, Erik Winter, Arnold duren detective, Erlendur, and Håkon Ness's chief inspector, Van Vettren, have become synonymous with the Nordic police procedural's male anti-hero investigator. Mankell's Wallander series, from faceless killers in 1991 to the pyramid in 1999 takes place in and around the provincial southern Swedish town of Ustad on the shore of the Baltic. Mankell intended the Wallander series as an investigation into the deterioration of the often celebrated Swedish social consciousness, infected by a growing sense of insecurity and xenophobia. While set in a provincial borderland, Mankell's crime fiction is global in scope, confronting the attitudes of a provincial Swedish microcosm towards border-crossing phenomena such as immigration, organ trafficking in the developing world, human trafficking in *Sight Tracked* from 95, Swedish mercenaries in the Congo in the fifth woman from 96, and an international conspiracy to destroy the financial system to right the wrongs of a worldwide economic inequality in firewall from 98. Rather than focusing solely on crimes and their investigations, Manker's texts devote much attention to Valander's thought processes, his poor habits, ailing body and deteriorating relationships. With his psychological and bodily wounds, Valander throughout the series becomes a complex reflector of a society unable to commit ethically and with solidarity to the challenges of a globalized world. Less explicitly critical of contemporary society and less interested in international affairs than Mankell's is Ness's A Van Vieteren series from 93 to 2003. As the setting in a fictitious country suggests, however, a recurrent theme that Ness's crime fiction shares with several other Nordic crime novels is the abuse of women by men, most explicitly in Woman with Birthmark from 96. Although not exclusively writers of crime fiction and focusing to a large extent on the psychological and communal effects of crime, Shastin Ekman in Blackwater from 93 and Karin Fossum in the series on Konrad Sayer, including Don't Look Back from 96, have similarly explored the geographical and cultural peripheries of late modern Scandinavia in internationally acclaimed crime novels. Ekman's Blackwater is a forceful account of environmental and communal starvation as a result of modernisation and the rise of centralised welfare institutions. Dominating the debates about Nordic crime writing in the 1990s and to a large extent the bestseller lists was what first became known in Sweden as FEMICrime crime crime novels with a female protagonist written by women often from a feminist perspective. This new wave of women crime writers includes Lisa Marklund, Camilla Leckberg from Sweden, Greta-Lise Holm and Sara Bløll from Denmark, the Norwegian Anna Holt and Finnish Lena Letoleinen. While indebted to the often masculine conventions of the genre and the Nordic social realist tradition, including the focus on gender and sexual politics, these writers reverse traditional depiction of women in the genre as passive, asexual and inferior. From an explicit feminist perspective, Elisa Marklund's series with the journalist Annika Bengtson, beginning with the bomber uh, from 1998, recounts the struggles facing an ambitious female crime reporter juggling family responsibilities in her everyday life in a male-dominated world while solving crimes that also include domestic violence. Violence against women, the corruption of the welfare state, and moral bankruptcy of, of capital, also central themes in Jussi Adler Olsen's Department Q series, and Stieg Larsson's posthumously published international blockbuster, the Millennium Trilogy, published in Sweden between 2005 and 2007. While the global success of Nordic crime fiction in the new millennium is indebted to the unprecedented sales and global reach of these three novels and their later film adaptations, the Millennium Trilogy also shares a more local and critical interest in revising the culturally suppressed influences of right-wing ideologies and the legacy of the Second World War on contemporary Swedish society. With novels such as Arne Dale's Requiem, 2004, Gunnar Stålesen's At Night, All Wolves Are Grey from 83, and Jon Nesbø's third Harry Hole novel, The Red Breast from 2000. In the 21st century, Nordic crime fiction is a literary genre and a publishing phenomenon which has maintained its local social critical potential in a global market for books and entertainment. The success of the genre is increasingly reinforced by film adaptations and series made for television such as Mankell's Wallander series and The Killing. Nordic noir or Nordic crime fiction could be labelled welfare crime. On the one hand, as a consumer article now available from any supermarket on TV every hour of the day, the reading and viewing of crime fiction is an activity which reflects the leisure activities and the patterns of consumption fit for a large section of society belonging to the middle class. Was it not for the welfare state such books and TV productions made for the Danish public service channel would not be consumed in the rate and manner they are? They would probably not be written or produced either, as most of the authors had other mostly white-collar occupations before turning to crime. It appears that the most frequent prior occupation for crime writers is journalism. But there's also a growing trend of law enforcement personnel turning to fictional crime. One of the positive effects of a well-functioning social safety net is that people are not so anxious about changing their job and careers as the living standards of Scandinavians do not diminish considerably should they lose the security of their steady job while they wait for their crime novels to climb the bestseller lists. While welfare crime fiction is sustained by the material circumstances of the welfare state, it is on the other hand a genre which deals thematically and critically with the daily exploits and anxieties of the larger middle class and the limitations of the social and communal framework of state institutions. One of the clearest expressions of this anxiety about the death of the welfare state and the fear that it never really was anything but an utopia is found in Henning Mankell's first Valander novel, Faceless Killers. Wallander realized that he was not alone in his feelings of uncertainty and confusion at the new society that was emerging. We live as if we were in mourning for a lost paradise, he thought, as if we longed for the car thieves and safe crackers of the old days. But those days have irretrievably vanished and nor is it certain that they were as idyllic as we remember them. Today, this obsession in crime writing with the death of the welfare state is close to becoming a genre cliche that is used to frame all sorts of unbelievable storylines. In the press release and on the DVD box set for the Danish TV series, Those Who Kill, which was also shown on ITV here in Britain last year, one reads the following account of crime beyond the well-functioning welfare state uh, presented as a post-apocalyptic dystopia. I shall read you the full text as it is rather good, I think. Those Who Kill is a crime series about a violent criminal surrounded by fear and mystique, the serial killer. Up until now, we have been able to curtail their activities with early and effective interventions via the safety net of a comprehensive social welfare system in Scandinavia. But times have changed. Borders have opened up. Social welfare is in decline. And slowly but surely, the whole system has become imbued with a sense of resigned impotence and callous disregard for those it once sought to rescue. The rifts in the net have become so large that bigger fish are slipping through the mesh. And as a result, a new type of crime is starting to burden. Killings not grounded in traditional motives and patterns of behavior. This presentation of a welfare dystopia, which in the series itself looks much like contemporary Denmark, I'm afraid, draws upon a Danish consensus affirming the centrality of the welfare state in all aspects of life. It creates social safety net which to catch the fish that threatened to slip out of society. It is the welfare state that protects its citizens, cares for the sick, provides trust between people. But times have changed. The crisis of the welfare state that also Valander noticed in the 1990s has led to a new type of criminal, the serial killer, most often associated with narratives from American popular culture, the dangerous other in Nordic welfareism. While it is not obvious from the series itself, the reason for the end to the Danish welfare state, its decline in the near future, is that the borders have opened up. It is tending to think that the borders referred to here are the national borders surrounding the utopian and harmonious welfare state, now made porous by the various processes and products of globalization. The serial killers now popping up in every weekly episode, in a country that has possibly only witnessed one case that could be defined as such in recent history are like the trolls, witches and dark forests of folklore into which we use to project our anxieties and fears about strangers and the unknown beyond the safe confines of the idyllic welfare state. <laughs> so what is this to do with uh, Salon's jumper, I hear you asking? Now. While Lund is in in interesting ways embodies a host of the less endearing characteristics of the traditional morose male detective in Nordic noir, unable to relate socially and responsible to her family and her sexual and professional partners, an increasing lack of well-being, her iconic knitwear signals a nostalgic longing for much simpler times and the golden age of the welfare state in the 1960s, 1970s, where this sort of jumper was a counterculture uniform. Dunn wears it as an ironic piece of armor against the corruption of politics, the brutalization of society through war, and the subservience of justice and democracy to major business interests in the 21st century throughout the three seasons of the TV series. In the end, the accumulation of injustices, the opaque workings of the political system provoke her to take matters into her own hands. Rather than being the detective who in the end solves the crime, thereby returning justice uh, to the state, she herself, abandoned by all hope, commits the eponymous killing, possibly disillusioned by her own lack of responsible engagement with her nearest. Her private story, her lack of close familial relations is, as in so many other welfare crime stories, terrifyingly similar to the welfare state that has lost all its power to encourage trust and provide security and well-being for its citizens. As in any good crime story, now that I have rounded up the many suspects, I should reveal whether Nordic noir really killed the Nordic welfare state or indeed if a body has ever been found. Keeping in mind that my evidence is limited to, the, to that provided by the Nordic crime writers themselves, which I realize are very dubious witnesses and may seriously compromise my case, I will have to say no. The killer is still at large, as is the body of the welfare state. Stay tuned for a second season. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Jakob. Jakob, with his usual poise and discipline, has left us 10 whole minutes for questions, so um, may I invite questions? Uh, Thank you very much for that uh, illuminating lecture. I just want to ask, uh, um, I'm still not sure entirely what you mean by welfare crime. Do you have a definition for it to help me?
1: I am looking for a definition, this is an early attempt to... Uh, welfare crime is often used in uh, reviews in Scandinavia as sort of uh, derogatory because it is not as exotic as Italian crime novels where they have really exotic crimes. So welfare crime is sort of run-of-the-mill, everyday crime fiction. My, my definition is a bit complex because it both refers to the fact that a lot of these crime novels that should be about, you know, really exciting murders and, 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 and how they were, uh, how, to prosecu- how to prosecute the criminals. They are really about everyday life, right? So it's, it's an attempt to emphasize the social realism aspects, that this is about, you know, how, how do you get your, your children looked after if you have to go out and find the murderer? How do you take care of, of your elderly when you don't have time for them? This is something that the welfare state has to take care of. And how do you relate to those family uh, issues? when the welfare state has taken away all those, uh, all those things that are close and, and near to us. So that's one of the, the sort of thematic welfare conflicts that we find across these uh, novels. On the other hand, I also think that, as I also uh, said in my lecture, that <clears throat> the, the, the mass of crime novels that we see are really a, a, an expression of a well-functioning welfare state in that people are allowed and given time to write novels. <laughs> I mean, uh, it is often overlooked, but I mean, uh, one of the early formulations of, of what the welfare state was all about is, well, it, people should feel safe and secure enough to do whatever they want. And that could be, you know, cultural activities. And this, this was formulated in the 1950s by philosophers and politicians together uh, at, at big meetings at modern art uh, you know, galleries in Copenhagen. Um, but you shouldn't feel secure as, an, as, a, as a person, as an individual, right? You should have safety of the state, But existentially, you should still feel insecure. And what you were about to do was that you were about to go out there, realize yourself and find out your own existence. I mean, this is something that's often overlooked in today's political discussions about what the welfare state is supposed to do for us. It's mostly about material things. But I think that's one thing that has been taken up by these crime novels is actually to try and find out, well, who are we now who live in this welfare state? And we have been given this opportunity um, to to go out and... and, um, spend our time um, doing something else than work. Thank you for the question. All the way in the
2: back. Thank you. Um, Given the explosion in Nordic literature uh, across the world, don't you think that it's potentially becoming a little bit more superficial? and that, dare I say it, the authors are just, you know, swimming with the tide and, and making money.
1: Absolutely. I hope they do, because, I mean, being an author is not an easy living. I mean, if you want to make, you want to make money, uh, writing books. I mean, I think we're pretty safe to say that most of the novels being published still today are sort of the back catalogue of good Nordic noir crime. I mean, most of the novels that are being published today were published 5, 6, 10, 15 years ago in Scandinavia, so there's still a lot of a back catalogue to get through. Um, some of it is, of course, um, you know, of varying quality, to what you need as a reader. Um, some of these crime novels are, of course, written for um, pure entertainment, while others have, you know, have something they want to uh, tell us about, something that uh, is their own life experience. I mean, I talked about these journalists writing. They often write sort of very programmatic stories about things that they could have written in a newspaper article, and one could say, yeah, I would rather read a newspaper article than a whole novel about this issue, or we have um, uh, former prosecutors, policemen who write about their experiences in a sort of fictional account. I mean, that's interesting to read about um, in, a, in, a, in an exciting book. Uh, it depends on what you are looking for as a reader, I think, and I think Nordic noir as any popular genre gives the possibility of one to find you know, a variety of, of stories for, for, for different situations.
2: Um, thank you for the very interesting lecture. Uh, It gave me something to think about that I hadn't thought about before, that the the shadows um, which which produce crime writing are something to do with the closing of culture, the closing of libraries, the closing of um, archeological departments. And um, uh, uh, I mean, I know that my son's doing archeology span and nobody can get a job in it. Um, and libraries and museums. Um, But the question I was going to ask before you put that in my head was do you think there'll be more crime writing about hospitals now we know about East Stratfordshire and uh, now that, um, dare I say it, that Malcolm Grant okayed Sir Nicholas to stay on as a commissioner who was in charge of Stratfordshire and do you think that climate in the Nordic countries has something to do with with the amazing crime-writing stories. Sorry, it was a bit muddled. I was going to ask about climate, but what you said, with it, uh, and then I thought I'd get the courage to mention what Malcolm Grant said in the Times two days ago. I'll probably get expelled now.
1: <laughs> Thank you, very interesting question. Well, I think, I think basically crime-writing, as, as all storytelling, as always been you know, in folklore and I mentioned folklore and mythology. I mean there have always been stories that uh, tended to help us negotiate, communicate about, face things that we, we do not understand. Uh, times of change, transformations in our lives, uh, our uncertainties and insecurities and these are shared by, by, by people all over the world and are fairly common to all of us. And changing structures in society such as uh, certain jobs that become superfluous or people get fired. All these things are fantastic uh, engines for writing good crime stories about them because we can share these stories. And crime fiction, as I see it, is a vehicle for, for sharing stories about our existence, our daily lives and, and our well-being. Um, I will hope that some stories come out about closing down hospitals. I mean, that seems a perfectly, uh, <laughs> a perfectly good story to me to start with. Um, and libraries, lots of crime fiction set in libraries that are you know, terrifying. So I, I, I can't see, I can't see why not. I mean, I think that's the whole purpose of of popular fiction to be uh, shared about anxieties. Yes.
0: Very much enjoyed your talk, uh,
1: Jonas. Thank you. I, I recently read a very amusing, lighthearted story called uh, "The One Hundred-Year-Old Man Who." stepped out of a window and disappeared, Jonas Johansen. Definitely not Nordic noir, but sort of connected to the genre. And about someone, a very old person, who decides to escape, as it were, one of the provisions of the welfare state and have, have a lot of fun. It's a bit of a road story. I can imagine it being made into a road movie. Uh-huh. Do you have any comment about the development of that sort of genre linked to the welfare state um, in, in, in the Nordic countries? Excuse me, of, of that novel particularly, or? Uh, yes, not that particular novel, but that was perhaps representative
0: of um, maybe a strand that, that, that has emerged.
1: Yeah. Uh, I, I, do, I do take that I make crime writing in Scandinavia sound like the only writing that deals with the themes of welfare and, and well-being. And if you uh, take a chance to look at our Scandinavian issue, you will see that there is no crime writing in there. I mean, there are stories parallel to the ones that you mentioned, Per Petterson out stealing horses, for example. I mean, these are stories about people who negotiate their own identity in relationship to senses of community. So, can, mm-hmm. I, can I perform my identity within this community? What happens if I put myself outside? Can I do without others? And that is a real tension in... In, in Scandinavian fiction, I think, between the individual and society. And it's negotiated in so many different levels. We also have almost a whole sub-genre of um, 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 sort of pensioners novels these days, or, or people in institutions coming out. So the whole genres of uh, uh, nursing homes, for example, nursing home novels. Uh, and I mean, some of them are written by incredibly uh, uh, prolific and interesting authors who have had experiences with either parents or others uh, in that kind of welfare system and are wondering, where is our humanity? How can I put that into, uh, into writing? My How can I share that experience in, in interesting ways? And I do feel that fiction, by and large, asks different questions than we usually get if we have a welfare society hearing in uh, the chambers of, uh, of, of government. We do g- ask different questions and we get different kinds of answers. Uh, than the sorting out um, politics and and procedures that we usually get, Uh, and much more should be written about and and read of these uh, particular novels. Thanks for the question. That's a good one.
0: Thank you very much. Um, I was wondering um, how much this, Nordic noir is part of a branding from the Scandinavian-Nordic region. I mean, would it be possible to think that the Femi crime fiction in uh, Denmark, for example, would have more to do with the Frauenkrimi in Germany and, the, in France, Le Polar Femina, than it actually has with a, a crime, Finnish crime novel from, uh, you know, the Northern Finland? That's
1: a good question. Uh, obviously, Scandinavian not the only one who questions the uh, current crisis of welfare societies. Um, I think it's by and large chance that Scandinavian crime writing has had this kind of um, success and mostly due to Stieg Larsson's success. Okay, so that, that's how the publishing world works. Uh, what, what I do think we see is that more and more publishers in Britain are being interested in finding out Well, maybe there's a Stieg Larsson who doesn't speak Swedish but speaks a different language or wrote in a different language. And, I mean, French crime novels, Italian crime novels, there are all sorts of European crime novels that are also welfare crime novels from different traditions. And crime writers are probably the writers that meet other writers more often than any other writer. They travel to all these festivals, they spend time talking to readers from all sorts of nations and... Uh, their colleagues and it's, it's an absolutely vibrant uh, transnational community of, of, of writers and readers. And uh, so no doubt this is not only a Nordic phenomenon and uh, lots of these tendencies can be seen parallel in other countries. There are of course some particularities to the Scandinavian context which is how this literature, uh, how literature has been formed and um, acted with a particular historical development of welfare societies in a particular time. So all the, the, the historical context, the political context, are always different from country to country, which makes for even more interesting discussions across, across nations. Thank
0: you. Since we have, sorry about that, but since we have a large class descending upon this lecture theater in exactly four minutes, I need to draw these proceedings to a close. Can I thank you all for coming and for your questions? And thanks to our speaker for a riveting talk. Thank, thank you. you.